Welcome to the 16th episode of Back to Basics, a podcast dedicated on getting you educated on the basics of life and beyond. My name is Maggie Windsor and I'm your host for today's episode. Today we'll be talking about Eastern philosophy, its major principles, its history through its most influential thinkers, and more. Eastern philosophy harbors its own individual religious and philosophical trains of thought unique to Western ideas. This cultural difference cultivates a rich history of questions and hypotheticals. Let's get back to basic. The first philosopher we are going to be talking about today is Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu is a Chinese philosopher born in the 6th century BC. His existence is debated. Some argue that the books he wrote under the Elias Lao Tzu were compilations of different philosophers' work. But for the purpose of this podcast, I will be referring to him as one person. Lao is credited with the founding of the philosophical system of Taoism. He is best known as the author of Lao Tzu, later retitled to Tao Te Ching, translated as the way of virtue or the classic of the way in virtue, the work which exemplifies his thought. At the time, according to Chinese tradition, he was an actual historical figure, and in religious Taoism, he is understood as a deity. The myth goes that he tried to instruct people in the way of Tao, the living force slash energy that runs through everything on this earth. He argued that by moving with Tao, people could live happier, more fulfilled lives instead of constantly pushing against it. No one listened to Tim, so he retired into seclusion after writing The Way of Virtue. The value of his work became recognized much later, and he is now one of the founders of Chinese philosophy. Lao advocated for deep connective empathy between people as the means to peace and harmony and claimed that such empathy was possible through recognition of the cosmic force of Tao, which had created all things, bound all things, moved all things, and finally loosened all things back into their original state. Aligning oneself with Tao, according to Lao Tzu, brought one harmony with the universe and enriched one's life. Opposition to Tao only brought frustration, unhappiness, and anger, which resulted in bad behavior. He also created the famous yin-yang symbol, the constant and balanced motion slash energy of the universe. Lao in his time was extremely interested in converting the working class. This was in a time of war for China, and he thought that Tao would bring a very conflicted working class, peace, and serenity. The next philosophy we're going to be talking about is Confucius. Confucius, whose original name is Kong Kui, was China's most famous teacher, philosopher, and political theorist, whose ideas profoundly influenced the civilizations of China and other East Asian countries. Confucius was born between 770 and 481 BCE into an aristocratic family of the Zhu dynasty. He lived an incredibly long life period at the time, dying at 73. Whether this was because good health or money, we will not know. While Confucius had many teachings about many different topics, we're going to focus on just a few of them today. One of the biggest elements of Confucius's theories was their political element, though they seemed to be intended for the self. For example, he observed that Emperor Shun was able to order the world simply by perfecting his own humanity and by cultivating a respectful demeanor. If you set an example by correcting your mistakes, who dares not to correct his mistakes? He asked the counselor, Zhikangji, just desire the good and the people will be good. The character of those at the top is like that of the wind. The character of those below is like that of the grass. When the wind blows over the grass, the grass is sure to bend. But when asked who should come first when administrating in state, he says, trust. If a ruler's words and actions do not inspire trust, Confucius asserts, his government will certainly perish, even though he might ensure enough food to feed the people and adequate arms to defend them. Confucius thought that the classic enfoffment system of the early Zhu dynasty came very close to an ideal government because it was very grounded in the trust between the Zhu emperor in the West and the relatives he sent East with vested authority to create new colonies for the young empire. Such a government, reinforced with the civilizing powers of rites and music, does not need complex laws and edicts to keep people in check, Confucius said. Guide the people with ordinances and statues and keep them in line 
with the threats of punishment, they will try to stay out of trouble, but will have no sense of shame. If you guide them with exemplary virtue and keep them in line with the practice of rights, they will have a sense of shame and will know to reform themselves. The next philosopher we will be talking about is Siddhartha Gautama, otherwise known as Buddha. Siddhartha was born in 567 BCE in a small kingdom just below the Himalayan foothills. His father was a chief of the Shaika clan. The legend goes that he grew up in a palace that his father built. He was fully trapped with everything a man could want food, jewels, and music. This was all to present Siddhartha from the prophecy that a shaman had made before he was born. He would grow up and leave the kingdom to become a great sage. Regardless, Siddhartha felt a longing to leave and to see the world. So the king organized a trip to the neighboring town. When he was there, he saw an old man, the first old person he had ever seen. Stricken, he asked to return to the village. On the next trip, he saw a sick man, the first sick man he had ever seen. Stricken, he asked once again to return. And on his final trip to town, he saw a funeral and a dead man. This was a revelation. He left the palace and swapped his expensive clothing for simple robes. He then joined many different teachers, meditating and starving himself and more to find enlightenment. Finally, years later, he sat under a Bodhi tree on a bed of grass. He sat there under the tree, unmoving and meditating for six days. Finally, when he opened his eyes, he found himself to be Buddha, the enlightened one. Afterward, he wrote the Four Noble Truths. These were as such. They are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. More simply put, suffering exists. It has a cause, it has an end, and it has a cause to bring about its end. The notion of this suffering is not to intend to convey a negative worldview, but rather a pragmatic perspective that deals with the world as it is and attempts to rectify it. The concept of pleasure is not denied, but acknowledged as fleeting. Pursuit of pleasure can only continue what is ultimately an unquenchable thirst. The same logic belies an understanding of happiness. In the end, only aging, sickness, and death are certain and unavoidable. The Four Noble Truths are a contingency plan for dealing with the suffering humanity faces suffering of a physical kind or of a mental nature. The first truth identifies the presence of suffering. The second truth, on the other hand, seeks to determine the cause of it. In Buddhism, desire and ignorance lie at the root of suffering. By desire, Buddhists refer to craving pleasure, material goods, and immortality, all of which are wants that can never be satisfying. As a result, desiring that can only bring suffering. Ignorance, in comparison, relates to not seeing the world as it actually is. Without the capacity for mental concentration and insight, Buddhism explains one's mind is left undeveloped, unable to grasp the true nature of things. Vices such as greed, envy, hatred, and anger derive from this ignorance. The final philosophy we're going to discuss is Gandhi. Gandhi was an Indian lawyer, anti-colonial nationalist, and political ethicist who employed nonviolent resistance to lead successful campaigns for Indian independence from British rule and in turn inspired movements for civil rights and freedom across the world. He's also a philosopher with distinct theories on anti-violence, empathy, and more. He has many different thoughts, but we're going to focus on two cardinal theories, truth and nonviolence. It should be remembered that the English word truth is an imperfect translation of the Sanskrit word satya, and nonviolence an even more imperfect translation of amhisa, derived from sat, that which exists, satya contains a dimension of meaning not usually associated by English speakers with the word truth. There are other variations too, which are no need to go there. For Gandhi, truth is relative in the relative truthness in the word and deed, and the absolute truth, the ultimate reality. The ultimate truth is God, as God is also truth, and morality, the moral cause and load, its basis. Amhisa, far from meaning mere peacefulness or the overt absence of violence, is understood by Gandhi to denote active love the pole opposite of violence or himsa in every sense. The ultimate station of Gandhi assigns nonviolent stems from two main points. First, if according to the divine reality, all life is one, then all violence committed towards another is violence towards oneself. 
towards the collective whole self and thus self-destructive, counter to the universal law of love. Second, Gandhi believes that Amhisa is the most powerful force in existence. Had Himsa been superior to Amhisa, humankind would have long ago had succeeded in destroying itself. The human race certainly could have not progressed as far as it has. Universal justice remains far on the, off the horizon. From both viewpoints, nonviolence or love is regarded as the highest law of humankind. Although there are elements of unity in Gandhi's thought, they're not reduced to a system. It is not a rigid, inflexible doctrine, but a series of beliefs and principles which are applied differently according to the historical and social setting. Therefore, there can be no dogmatism, inconsistency, and is not a sin. Interpretation of the principles underwent much evolution during Gandhi's lifetime, and as a result, many inconsistencies have been found in his writings, to which he readily admitted. The reader of Gandhi's works published by the Navajivan Trust will notice that many have prefaced with the following quotation from an April 1933 edition of Harijan, one of Gandhi's journals. He states straightforwardly, I would like to say to the diligent reader of my writings and to others who are interested in them that I am not concerned with the appearing to be consistent. In my search after truth, I have discarded many ideas and learned many new things. What I am concerned with the readiness to obey the call of truth, my God, from moment to moment, and therefore, when anybody finds any inconsistency between two writings of mine, if he still has faith in my sanity, he would do well to choose the latter of the two on the same subject. Now we are going to move on to our next topic. Last episode, we discussed Western philosophy and large philosophical trains of thought. We finished five out of the ten. Nihilism, existentialism, stoicism, hedonism, and Marxism. If you'd like to learn more about these, check out the podcast episode on Western philosophy. We're not going to include two of these schools in the description because they've been previously described in the section about Eastern philosophers. These schools are Taoism and Buddhism. Regardless of this, we are going to move on to the final three. Logical positivism is defined as the philosophical movement that arose in Vienna in the 1920s and was characterized by the view that scientific knowledge is the only kind of factual knowledge and that all traditional metaphysical doctrines are to be rejected as meaningless. Although this viewpoint gained popularity in the 20s and 30s, it suffered a large blow when Ludwig Wittgenstein denounced his previous work in favor of the school's ideas that utterly changed course. The school still had a great deal of influence, particularly on the work of Karl Popper and Wittgenstein, who worked very hard to disprove the core tenets. Even though this train of thought is not as common, it was a core developer of Western philosophy. The next school of thought is rationalism. Rationalism is defined as a belief or theory that opinions and actions should be based on reason and knowledge rather than religious belief or emotional response. Hence, as you can tell, rationalism is basically what the name indicates. If our senses are often wrong, how can we ever trust them to get reality right? This is the key tenet of rationalism. The idea of knowledge must come primarily from reason and thought rather than empirical evidence. The idea has been widespread in history. Thinkers argue for rationalism include Socrates, René Descartes, and Spinoza. Their view, that reason alone could reveal the great truths of the world, has largely fallen out of use in favor of a more diverse group of methods for finding truth. British philosopher Galen Strabazin explained the limit of the rationalist approach to knowledge when he explained, You can see that it's not true just lying on your couch. You don't have to get on your couch and go outside and examine the things are in the physical world. You don't have to do any science. There is a more convenient viewpoint, but now modern thinkers combine rationalism with empirical data from a well-rounded scientific approach. Our next school of thought is relativism. Relativism is defined as the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. Another way to look at it is that relativism is the idea that views are relative to the perspective or considerations. This idea can be applied to morality or truth itself, with some arguing that there are no moral facts or absolute truths. Similarly, situational relativism is the idea 
in ethics where a rule is to be followed under all conditions except for one, when we would then follow another rule. For example, don't kill unless you have to save lives doing so. This idea in revised form was supported by the American philosopher Robert Nozick in his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Cultural relativism, a subcomponent of relativism, is the notion that the morality of two different cultures cannot be compared and a person outside one culture cannot critique the values and morality of another. And while this idea is not held by any major philosophers and is generally seen as self-defeating by those who work in ethics, it is still an important part of relativism school of thought. In conclusion, Eastern philosophy is a rich and deep topic that delves into different cultural and religious trains of thought. The unique history and geography of Asia creates a unique environment unlike anything in the West. If you'd like to learn more about me, check out my Instagram at Back to Basics or my YouTube channel at Back to Basics. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.